Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. If you write in, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. But you control the conversation, so you can call me anything you like. Yeah. Call him late for dinner. See what happens. Yeah, dinner, whatevs. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged now. I eat like 10 calories a day and I'm good. I like calories. It tastes good. You're, you're just going to need less and less. You're good like, in you're, my you're, you're gonna, Your body will just crave less and less. That's the way it happens. Well, in any case, uh, yeah, this is a podcast where you write in to letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you can write in with questions, concerns. You want to talk about stuff we talked about on our podcast. You want to ask us about uh, movie history, recommendations, topics du jour. You want to ask us about popsicles? Someone did that last <laughs> week. That was a treat. In more ways than one. Literally a treat. Yeah. Uh, but seriously, anything you want, we try to be open books, and we try to just get right to it because this time is yours, Whitney. Yes. Let's start with our first letter. Our first letter is from Ori. Hi, Ori. Hello, Ori. Uh, hello, William and Rockmeister Aquel. It's McCool. Rockmeister McCool. There's no wrong way to spell it. Therefore, it's McCool. And Rockmeister McCool. Uh, I have always I have always tried writing film scripts. Hmm. I have a problem coming up with a good structure. Ah. I always think of cool characters, maybe a decent scene or two, but I'm never able to grasp a structure of even a most basic plot. For example, boy wants girl, so he question mark. A man needs to pay back a debt, so he question mark. The world's about to be hit by a meteor, so our hero must question mark. These are examples not for you to finish or uh, but or for me but just examples of places where I get stuck. Any mm. tips on how to get over that part? Thank Ori. Okay, so uh, the you're, screenwriting. You're, you're the screenwriting major of the two of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you you, you take, the, take point on this one. You know, that's a good question. Um, and what we're, what we're talking about really is you've got to start, you've got like a setup. You've got an initial thing. There's mm. a meteor attack or uh, <laughs> someone's like going after a corrupt cop in their administration or something. What if, and then what? <laughs> that's, and that's a good way uh. to do any any script. There's a, a Todd Salon's film called Wiener Dog in which uh, Danny DeVito plays a screenwriting professor who says the two main rules of writing are ask what if and say then what. Mm. So it sounds like you've got the idea for the idea of a story or you've got your characters and you just don't know what uh, paces you want them to go through. Um, and, and this would actually be a lot more useful if I could have a real back and forth with you about the kinds of screenplays you want to write. Do you want to write comedies? Do you want to write genre films, sci-fi, horror, fantasy? Do you want to write a serious drama about your own life, etc.? Um, but if structure is what you're concerned about, uh, if a matter of just getting from point A to point B and like finding the places to fill in, you, it sounds like you might actually really benefit from reading some books about story structure because that's one of the few things you can teach in terms of writing. It's really hard to teach inspiration. It's really hard to teach um, connecting to your characters and making them feel like alive and, mm -hmm. and like a person. But you can teach the nuts and bolts of how to set things up, pay them off later, how to sort of create a guideline for a narrative flow. Some people don't work that way, but some people really do. So mm -hmm. along those lines, you may want to look up uh, Robert McKee's, uh, it's just called Story, right? I, I haven't read that one, actually. Okay, yeah. well, that's that's one right there that is, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and if you've ever seen the movie Adaptation, Brian Cox plays him. And yeah, he can mm -hmm. be like a lot of writers who teach 
structure, a little rigid in terms mm. of what he thinks is expected of a screenplay. But if what you need is to figure out that structure, that could be useful. Another one, although do, do not take any of these as gospel, but just use them maybe as a guideline, something to sort of get your juices flowing. You may want to consider also reading Save the Cat. Uh, which people took, <laughs> which is, which at, is a, a, a very dangerous place to to traverse. Do not treat it as gospel. Just treat it as a way to just sort of get some ideas yeah. uh, flowing. If there are movies like the movie you want to tell, like if you want to do a romantic comedy, mm. you may want to watch some romantic comedies and ask yourself what is expected of a genre film what is expected of a romantic comedy because that's what people who go to a romantic comedy just to pick a genre out of a mm. hat. That's what people who go to this genre want to see. But then you realize as you watch a whole bunch of them that the whole point is to twist it around every once in a while. And so you ask yourself, what hasn't been done? What would I like to see? I've seen this scene play out a million times in exactly this way. It's the scene where um, you know the, the guy finally realizes he's in love with the girl, but then he sees her um, hugging her ex-boyfriend for a completely arbitrary, benign reason, and he makes the wrong assumption, and he decides to go off and get a shotgun marriage to his ex-girlfriend, who is, they're really bad together. Mm. We've all seen that. <laughs> so instead of doing that, maybe ask mm. yourself, what, how can we flip this around? What if he interrupts them right there? And just says, hey, what's going on? And then you can have this conversation. You can totally flip that script around. And then you come up with another reason to sort of propel or, or, or uh, extend the action and the suspense a little bit longer. That's one the, idea. Yeah. that's uh, that, it, If you're talking about you've invented, like, a good protagonist, like yeah. only one good character, then uh, my suggestion would be to uh, put a lot of interesting characters around them as well. Yes, also uh, useful. Yeah, don't don't just think of one cool protagonist who you want to see in one scenario, because I think the hallmark of a good character is watching them interact with other characters. Yeah. Uh, see, you have characters they might be at odds with, characters they really get along with, characters mm-hmm. they just have interesting conversations with. Yeah, what do they I stand think, for? Yeah. Put them in a room with someone who stands for, for the opposite. Put them in the room mm-hmm. with someone who stands for the opposite but isn't as confident about it or or, or, or yeah, whatever you know or, or stands for the same thing but you know maybe they have a past together mm-hmm. or what is their what is the nature of their friendship i think working out the relationships between the characters and if you allow them to spend a lot of time together and talk a lot a lot of the scenario will become a lot less important mm-hmm. after a while and you realize that ex- just sort of traversing the world with those characters mm. is going to carry a screenplay a lot further than the strict uh, structure of an actual story. That's true. If you have a strong character and you have a character who, you know, has a point of view, has mm. uh, fears, desires, a the cer- things that make yeah, us a, human. A, even a certain way of speaking. That's, yeah. a, that's important, too. That can be very, very mm. important as well. And, it, and certainly you do want every character to sound distinct in their own way. Um, you might just try experimenting by throwing them in different situations mm-hmm. and just like write a scene. Don't worry about plot. Write a scene in which they go to a heavy metal concert. What yeah, are they yeah. like at a heavy metal concert? Write a scene where they mm-hmm. go on a blind date. What are they like on a blind date? Write a scene where they have to go visit an elderly relative who is, you know, ailing in some way. How mm-hmm. do they respond in that? And that will tell you what they are like in situations that are maybe outside their wheelhouse or what they're like in situations that daunt them mm. uh, in some way. Michelle, uh, uh, M. Lopez da Silva, my wife, she's been on a few of our uh, Cancel Too Soons lately. Um, she actually has a really good point about when you're starting a story, any story. It doesn't have to be a screenplay. Mm. 
most people look at what is called the inciting incident, which usually the, happens. The, the thing that starts the story. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's usually something, that's usually something kind of big. Um, they don't get their promotion. Uh, a meteor is going to hit the earth. They, yeah. they, they're living a really boring life, and you know they, they're a clerk in a bank, and then they're sitting down at a diner having a depressing meal. And Tom Cruise sits down, and he's a spy and pretends to know you, and then exits your life immediately. That's from Night and Day. That's and from that's, the movie Night and Day. And which that's is, a great setup. It's, it's a fun setup. It, that's that's one that like sort of strains against its own artificiality. Yeah. Like it, it's really a gimmicky screenplay, but if. If you're looking for the way traditional stories are structured, that's the kind of movie you might want to watch. That, it, it, Night and Day is actually kind of fun because it's mm. the exactly the traditional spy movie about the super spy who ends up like tagging along with an everyday person and they fall in love and whatever, and the everyday person's kind of the sidekick. Except we only see it from the everyday person's perspective. So he just sort of drops in and out of her life, and we don't see the details of yeah. his case. It, it's actually really clever, but you have yeah. to appreciate the genre in order mm. to think in order to think so, I think, which is why that was a hard sell. But what uh, uh, Michelle has talked about a lot is what people forget is that characters aren't just sitting around waiting for a story to happen to them. They have a life. And so before you figure out what the big inciting incident is, or before you worry too much about where that's going to go, ask yourself, what's the problem in their life right now? Yeah. What is their problem? Is it they, they can't stick up for themselves and everyone at work is walking all over them? Is it uh, they're trapped in a loveless marriage? Or is it uh, I've been trying to save the endangered wombat and no one cares? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, aliens land and no one cares about my wombats and whatever. And somehow the wombats become important later. These are all things that you can do. Mm -hmm. um, so... That's that's yeah, hopefully uh, these, these are all tricks basically these yeah. are all things for you to consider in order to sort of expand because let me tell you something writing a screenplay is hard it it's is. it's it's hard and it's easy at the same time when it's you, easy when to do you, badly it's easy but, to do badly but if you but, care about the end yeah. product a lot it's hard to do really yeah. well I, um and sometimes it won't form until you're writing like the fourth draft it's mm -hmm. like oh wait that's that's what this is about and you start writing other scenes here and there to really kind of bring mm -hmm. it all together. Um, the best uh, the two bits of screenwriting advice have stuck with me throughout the years. One was given to me, uh, given to the public by Kevin Smith, hmm. who said, "Write the screenplay of the movie you want to see." Yeah. Uh, no matter Great what, it, no matter what, how weird it is, how whatever the language you want to use, don't worry about whether or not it's going to sell. Just write the screen, write the kind of movie that you want to see because there's odds are somebody out there also wants to see a movie like that. Yeah, and maybe they haven't figured mm. out what it is yet. But mm. if you figure out, I've always wanted to see a movie about this, they've never made this movie, that mm. will connect to people. Yeah, the very least people will notice that you did something different. Yeah, don't worry about budget. Don't worry about how yeah. makeable it is at first. If you're just writing for the sake of getting it on the page, mm. do that. Write yeah. the movie you want to see. The other thing was from Tom Lennon and Ben Garant, who wrote a really wonderful book called Writing Movies for Fun and Profit, but they crossed out fun and on the cover. Yeah. Uh, because they're professional screenwriters, they wrote things like Night at the Museum and Taxi yeah. and Herbie Fully Loaded. You know, they, they were perfectly functional, but not amazing yeah, movies. I, they are, in their own description, Hollywood hacks. And uh, Someone's got to write those. Yeah, they said, um, if somebody gives you a note, you say, yes, I can do that. It doesn't matter how stupid or ridiculous it is. Yeah. If you can change it to somebody else's whim and you're not attached to it, that's a good way to go about screenwriting. Don't mm -hmm. become too attached to it. That's true. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, not, not listening to everyone's uh, whim, but don't become too attached to it. Be comfortable with the change. But yeah, with something changing yeah. into something completely different. And uh, 
most importantly, watch Die Hard a lot. <laughs> Die Hard is maybe one of the... There's a lot of perfect screenplays out yeah. there. Die Hard is definitely one of them. Yeah, Die, the Die Hard to this day is pretty much the template by which all action pictures are based upon. Yeah. Where everything has a setup, everything has a payoff. Yeah. Uh, is is there stuff in that screenplay that doesn't work that's kind of dated? Absolutely. Yeah, it was made in 1988. 80s. They did uh, the best they could, yeah. It, was, it wasn't dated at the time because it was made in the present. Uh, yeah. every, every film is. But uh, watch in terms of the way that film is set up, the way every story pays off, the way every character has something to contribute. Even the bad guys have little moments where yeah. the, the, the don't have any, the counter, don't have any lines, but they have a few little moments. Uh, there's a reason why Die Hard is the classic it is, and there's a reason why a lot of screenwriters study it. It's because yeah. it's just impeccably structured. Yeah. So watch that movie a few times. Uh, and also spend a long time just thinking about your screenplay, thinking about your characters, thinking about your story your story before you even start writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then start writing and just charge on through. Yeah, basically just uh, uh, write, 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 write. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it yet, throw it all away. Write, 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 write. Don't worry mm-hmm. about... Just don't worry about it. Just get it on the page. Yeah. There, the, the one bit of writing advice I'm going to throw in here that I heard from... God, was it J. Michael Straczynski, I think? Um, J. Michael Straczynski created Babylon 5. I think he said this, but he might have been quoting someone else. Hmm. Um, everyone has like 2,000 bad pages in them. <laughs> get them out of the way first. Yeah, do the, write those ones first. Write them right off the bat, and then once you... If you put, keep putting words on the page, and you know what movies look and sound like, you'd be like, well, that's not right. Mm. That was on the screen. That would play weird. No one would introduce themselves that way. That plot point is introduced kind of clunkily. I know that doesn't look right. Mm. So I'll throw those pages out. I know the plot point I need to get through. I'll try it again until it sounds right. And eventually it will. Mm. So in any case, I wish you luck. Uh, you know, writing is incredibly wonderful, important. It's great to share our experiences, our ideas, and our imagination. But the nuts and bolts of it are sometimes hard. So you can work through this. You can work through this. And I think you will work through this. I don't know if what we said helped. Hopefully it did. But if not, there are a lot of good books out there. There's some good screenwriting, like extension programs. And a lot of them are online now. Uh, Do some research. Don't just grab onto anything. And and realize that story isn't the the final product of any screenplay. It's always... You're writing the skeleton of something else. So So don't worry too much. Yeah, the, the story will come together. It's yeah. it's other things that make it yours that I think are more important. That's true. Uh, here's a letter from Chris. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Hello, Chris. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chris says, sorry to inform you, but you've unfortunately passed away. We're dead. Oh. oh. That's too bad. Due to the strange circumstances of the situation, a person of your choice will have to continue to do the podcast in your absence for the next year. <laughs> With the surviving member of Critically, also oh, only one of us is dead. Oh no! Yeah. So we have to choose which. Well, you of us told me died. I'm dead, so oh, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. All right, um, that's fine. I, that's, I always knew I'd go out on a podcast. <laughs> I hope I die on my. If I die on a podcast, put it out. Oh, yeah, it's gonna be just, so ghoulish. Just, oh, absolutely. I want. I want ghoulish. You hear the paramedics going. And it's yeah, absolutely. Le- oh, le- leave the ghoulish, horrible stuff Ooh, in monster. there. That's yeah. I want. I want my death to be public. Damn it. Um, who would you want to take your place for the next year? Any proceeds will go to your family. Who do I want to take mm. my place on this podcast mm. with Whitney Seibold for the next year? Yeah, since I put it to you, you get to choose. All right. I'm going to pick someone I know. Mm. Someone who's been on the show, so I know they have chemistry. Someone who's super smart. 
someone I have a lot of respect for, and someone who isn't already doing a ton of podcasts, because I think it'd be too much to ask Alonzo to no, do Al- another Al- podcast. That'd be so rude. Alonzo is already doing too many yeah. podcasts. In fact, he's, he's had to say no to us a couple times just because yeah. he's like... He's usually, busy. Usually, usually like to say yes, but I have like eight podcasts he's today. Busy. Yeah, busy. it's just, he's, just nuts. All right, so I pick Liz Shannon Miller. Okay. We I, had her I, on last year for our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood podcast. She's incredibly bright. She's like, very insightful. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's great. She's intelligent. She knows a lot mm. about cinema. She can teach you things that I can't. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, in a fantasy universe where I get to pick anyone I want, mm. Dorothy Parker. <laughs> Dorothy Parker comes back from the dead. We trade places in the afterlife. She comes back from the dead, mm. but only to do this podcast. So watch the movies, and she'll come on in, and it'll be the best podcast in the universe. There's a screenplay story. Uh, <laughs> a, a struggling film critic dies, and then is brought back in. Dorothy Parker takes over the body of that critic, and takes that sounds it, amazing. Takes and it's and it's a man takes his place. So Dorothy Parker is now a man. And she has to deal with that. She's that totally be, cool with it. That'd be amazing. Um, if if the tables were turned, who would you pick mm. to replace it to be to be my new co-host? Um, Kristen Lopez. Uh, she she leaps to mind. There's so She's many wonderful. I already do a podcast. Yeah, with her. I mean, there are so many wonderful critics out there that I, I don't want to sort of play favorites or pick people. Uh, just because there there are so many people I admire. Oh, it's not about right playing now. favorites. It's yeah. just about it's just about thinking about All who right. we'd like to hear more of. Um, hmm. I, I want somebody who'd like like you'd get under each other's skin, like oh, no. like people who you disagree you want, with them a lot. You want you want to fight? Not not a fight. Just you know, yeah. a, a interesting conversations. Okay, that that makes for an interesting podcast. All right. Um, so who so comes to mind? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Who who do you like? Who are you at odds with? Oh God. <laughs> <sighs> on the schmodown, a lot of people. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, who's, who's one of the schmodown personalities? Like, you, you and Christian get along well. No, um, probably Roca. John Roca, Roca yeah. and I. Like, we, we, yeah. we have a good understanding now. I think we respect each other now. But, but there you, was this whole bicker, period where yeah. we were kind of feuding uh-huh. on the schmodown for a while. And I don't know. I think we got a, I think we got a good rapport. I think we, uh, we, we there's give and take. And he has ideas about film that aren't mine. But I respect mm. his ideas and vice versa. That would be a good podcast, I think. All right. Yeah. All right, so hopefully that answers your question. Uh, yeah, and uh, and again, if if this is like fantasy world where I get to pick anybody, yeah, anybody, anybody's got to be my co-host. Let's see, Coffin Joe's dead. Elvira. Oh, that'd be <laughs> fucking great. If I could, if I could just pick someone, oh, that, and be I could amazing. get Elvira to, to replace me, then I choose Elvira. I want Elvira. Yeah, fucking Elvira. Yeah. Ooh, thank you. I'm not Cassandra Peterson. Elvira in cure. No, 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 no. My parents used to live next to Cassandra Peterson, like before I was born. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I went to a comic book convention once, and it was like my first comic book convention I ever went to. I was as an adult, and. Uh, and I actually, she's like the only person I stood in line with to get an autograph. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, hey, yeah, I met Elvira today, mom and dad. Oh, did you tell her hi? What? <laughs> I had an in with Elvira and you didn't tell me? <laughs> I had an in with Elvira. I could have said, by the way, do you know my, do you remember? Whatever. <laughs> had one chance to yeah. actually have a conversation with a proper conversation and not just, hi, I'm a big fan. Sign this, please. Like, that would have been that. I got to do that with Armin Shimmerman, who played Ooh. Quark on Deep Space Nine, because yeah. uh, my mom was in theater classes with him in high school. And I got to say, That's hey, cool. hey, you went to high school with my mom. He's like, oh, yeah, what was her name? Her, her maiden name was Luana George, or Luana Workman. Okay. Like, oh, hey, yeah. I, I remember her. It's like, great. That's my mom. Cool. Tell her I say hi. Here's- <laughs> Here's, here's your signed 8 by 10 glossy. That'll be 12 bucks. Like, all right, here we are. I, I didn't expect to get a discount, but it's like, you know, oh, yeah, he's, you're here to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you do. All right. That was, that, 
Mm. It was a slightly morbid, but very interesting question. Thank you for yeah. that. That was a fun. That was a fun exercise. I do not mind the morbid. Uh, here's another letter. This one comes from Ryko. Uh, hello, Ryko. Hi. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitmeister McSybil. <laughs> that's that's good. All right. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed your ultimate summer blockbuster draft podcast, oh, especially William's reactions to Whitney's Ahem interesting list. If you haven't listened to that episode, we were asked by one of our patrons to draft our perfect summer blockbuster season because we kind of didn't get one this year. And it's basically just coming up with a movie marathon. I kind of stuck to the letter of the premise and just picked summer blockbusters of yore that I thought mm-hmm. would go well together in order. Whitney picked the movies he wished were summer blockbusters, and only, like, two of them actually were. I picked, like, White House Down I said in two. 2001, Seven Samurai, big, big action spectacular. Yeah, only, like, two of action those are actual summer blockbusters. Mm-hmm. That was my point. So yeah. I was sort of also just, like... Basket Case, too. All right, fine. My point is this. It's a great list, but we approached it uh, very differently. Yeah. Um, a thousand golf claps for including 2001 A Space Odyssey. I was inspired to create my own summer blockbuster list. Oh, cool. So I started by researching movies released in May. I soon realized I could create a fantastic list only with movies that were released in May. So I did. Here's my summer blockbuster list made up of movies that were released in May. Awesome. I love uh, it. Number one, James Bond was going to be one of the first blockbusters to release the year before uh, COVIDing, so I'm going to start off my list with From Russia with Love. Ah, that's a good uh, one. It's got all the ingredients of Great Summer Blockbuster, and it's my favorite James Bond movie. Yeah, From <laughs> Russia with Love is underrated. Uh, it's weird, because it's actually super important in the way that, like, it filmed action. Like, the fist mm. fight between Connery and Robert Shaw on the train was, like, edited in a way that, like, American fight scenes hadn't been done before, and yeah. it kind of changed well, the language of action cinema. It's also... It's English film, but yeah. Well, yeah. Western cinemas, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, but, uh, and, and also, like, a lot of those early Bond films in particular, wonderful travel log. You watch, like, the Blu-ray <laughs> of it, and you're just like, ah, oh, I'm there. I want to be... I, I want to go to... Greece that, that, and that, that boat pool chase. in 1968. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So cool. Yeah. Uh, number two, what summer movie list wouldn't be complete without a comic book movie? So my next pick is X Men Two. All right. Yeah, impeccably structured that movie. Speaking of structure, yeah. uh, next up is my animation pick. Uh, you know, for kids, and that would be <laughs> Up. Damn it! The first ten minutes of that movie broke me. That's an interesting. That's an interesting animated film to to give to kids because like we want the kids to be sobbing in the theater for the first ten minutes, and then we pull it way back and we have like dog fighting dogs who control planes with rubber bones and have yeah. speaking. That is an odd movie. It's an. I love that movie. Yeah, that was, movie is weird. Here, here, here's my. Everyone ex- only talks about the first ten minutes because the first ten minutes are the part that makes sense. The rest of it's yeah. just weird. Here's an experiment. If you haven't seen the movie Up, maybe watch it without the first ten minutes. Yeah, see if it works. That, that first ten minutes is just a tidy little short film like, into itself. The, the, the ending, because the ending kind of mm. doubles back around to that, and you kind of see him like look over his life a little differently. Or, yeah. um, so I'm not sure the ending will hit, but. Yeah, weird film. Love the movie. I love that movie, but I love it because it's weird. All that stuff with the bird and... Yeah, you know, it's great. And el- elderly guys fighting each other with canes. I love that! Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, after the tears, I think summer audiences will be primed for a comedy, so the next release on my list is Bridesmaids. It's a okay. good time at the movies, and will also bring out the female demographic. Women can see all of these movies. Yeah, everyone on. can yeah. see all these movies. And I, I, think, I think men will mm. appreciate Bridesmaids as well. Bridesmaids is also a very smart mm. film about class issues because that's mm. a lot of what the movie is about. Her her best friend is marrying into money. 
and uh, now yeah. she feels completely in like completely out of place and His, she and yeah. her friends bonded over their mutual poverty and she yeah. won't be impoverished anymore. It, it's, it's it's a fun like movie with like a lot of like pooping in the street and stuff but it's actually also really smart and i think that's the reason why that movie goes from like just funny to really great i haven't seen bridesmaids it's really good yeah. you should see one of these days um, my next choice is actually a double header two fantastic movies for the price of one mad max 2 aka the road warrior and mad max fury road I know this is a bit of a cheat, but please don't make me choose. I need them both. They're both perfect. I'm sorry. Those are both perfect action movies. Those are amazing, <laughs> astonishingly good action movies. And the other Mad Max, the other Mad Max movies are good too. All right. But those two are just perfect action cinema. Road Warrior was one of the perfect action movies. You could always point to it and say, "What's a perfect action movie?" You say Road Warrior, <laughs> and then Fury Road came out, and like immediately, like, oh, also in Fury Road. <laughs> Uh, number six, I'm surprised Whitney didn't put a documentary on the list. <laughs> I thought about it. I thought about it. Uh, so I'm going to one of the few documentaries that caused a buzz and actually made good money is An Inconvenient Truth. Oh, I can't go. believe it's 14 years old and I can't believe that the climate is worse now than ever. Yeah. God damn it, summer movies shouldn't depress you. So I'm replacing An Inconvenient Truth with Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> <laughs> well played. All right, Smokey well the Bandit. Yeah. I felt uh, about pouring exhaust into the air with various car chases. All, all to get really shitty beer. It's not even yeah. good beer. No, it's bad beer. Yeah. Uh, Smokey uh, and the Bandit. Does he have anything to say about Smokey and the Bandit? Uh, no. Smokey <laughs> and the Bandit. I ne- I hadn't seen Smokey and the Bandit until we did a podcast about it like two years ago. Mm. I'd never, it just never came up. Smokey and the Bandit's so wonderful. Like It's so breezy and light. And talk about a movie with very little structure. Yeah. It's a setup, then there's a bunch of car chases, and they just stop in the middle of it to, like, fall in love every once in a while, and then the car chase ends. Like, it's it's really, really, really just fluffy. Yeah. It's fun, though. It's just, it just coasts on charm. It was it's a so huge great. deal, too. It was, like, was a massive the, hit. Like, the biggest, uh, highest-earning film in 1977. Nothing else came out? Yeah, nothing yeah. else came out yeah. in 1977. Certainly yeah. nothing that rhymed with blarblars. Blarblars. Blar, 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 blarblars. Um... <laughs> Number seven, I really missed the time when romantic comedies were big and uh, actually good. So the next summer release on my list is Notting Hill. Okay. Hugh Grant is uh, is one charming SOB. Uh, Number eight. That's not my favorite Hugh Grant film, but that's a good, everyone likes that one. That's fine. I, I still haven't seen Four Weddings and a Funeral. You I, never saw that? No, that movie's that great. One. That movie is that mm. that is still probably Hugh Grant's best movie. That's right. a really good film. Uh, number eight. I don't want to ignore independent films, so my next pick is Clerks. Okay. Uh, number nine. While researching horror movies that were released in May, I realized that I had my choice of some of the best horror movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I could have picked Dawn of the Dead or The Shining, but I go with Alien. Not only is it one of the best horror movies ever, it's also also ticks the sci-fi box. I love me some Alien. Alien's a brilliant film. A- Alien is Alien. also kind of a perfect movie, isn't it? Yeah, a- Alien is so good. Um, yeah. Number 10, the last movie on my list because I was stunned, and I mean stunned to find out it was released in May, so I'm ending the summer on a classic that was released on May 2nd, 1947. Ooh. May 2nd, 1947, Miracle on 34th Street. That's weird, right? <laughs> when they release Christmas yeah. movies, because back then, the movies would be released around the country at random times, so it didn't really matter, but... Mm. They were still doing that. I was when I was looking up this list. I was looking up like all these Christmas and like Halloween movies that were coming out in August. Yeah. Well, like Hocus Pocus was like a, an early July release. Mm. How'd you whiff that Disney? Yeah. Like, come on! I, I guess they wanted it out on home video in time, but like, 
No. The, the one that frustrated <laughs> me. in early yeah. October, damn it. The one that frustrated me was a Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Wonderful, s- spooky, awesome looking movie. Cool uh, movie. It gets yeah. better the more you watch it. Yeah. Um, I've seen that movie like five or six times. Yeah, it's great. Um, it was released in mid November. It's like you're two weeks too late. Well, that was how I was with uh, Doctor Sleep, a movie which. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that's my computer. I don't know why it did Tiscus. that. Tiscus. Uh, but I was Doctor Sleep is, you know, a sequel to The Shining, and you didn't like it as much as I did, but I mm. loved it. And I'm like, you. It came out the first week of November. <laughs> One week earlier, there wasn't even other horror stuff like mm, to compete I'm, with. Just give us something, man. Halloween, but, but Sleepy Hollow is especially egregious. It because it, a it's and, the haunted, it's the, the headless horseman. It's like haunted villages. Mm-hmm. One of the opening shots is a spray of blood spraying across a jack o' lantern right? scarecrow. It's like that's Halloween stuff. It's right there. <laughs> you had it. How did you miss this? Anyway, uh, as a bet, as a bonus, I'm including a Canadian only release, and that would be Ginger Snaps. Oh, that's a uh, great yeah, movie. I like Ginger Snaps. I uh, think it's still m- probably my pick for the best uh, werewolf movie. Well, the, the Wolf Man is going to be hard to beat for me because I love the Wolf Man. I love but, the Wolf Man. It's definitely one you know. of the great werewolf movies. And gin- the one thing Ginger Snaps doesn't have that I think the best werewolf movies have is an iconic transformation sequence. Yeah, there's, there's one in American Werewolf in London. There's, there's in, a good one in The Howling. Yeah, and there's even a classic one in The Wolfman, even though by today's standards it's a, it's pretty minor. But at the looks, time, No, it looks awesome to this day. I, yeah. I'm just saying, at the at the time, this mm-hmm. was pretty like, whoa. And now you look at it, I'm like, oh, I see how they did that. Yeah, so well, it's, like, yeah. it's just, it's a little bit more quaint, but mm-hmm. it's still very effective. Ginger Snaps, like the transformation over the course of the whole film, so I guess that kind of works, but I never mm-hmm. have like one bit where like a jaw dislocates yeah. and like, <laughs> Whatever, but like that, it's it's the best use of werewolf as allegory. I think uh-huh. I think it's the best one. Anyways, thank you for indulging me, and thank you for all the fantastic content on your network. Your proud patron, Ryko. That's um, a fun list. Yeah, and if anyone else wants list. to send in a list of uh, summer blockbuster marathon they'd like to put together and give mm-hmm. people ideas, please do. We'd be happy to do mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, but Rockmeister is spelled it. I'm going to show it oh, to you. Uh, it's like spelled out with like pronunciation guide. <laughs> That's really fun. <laughs> like you really said a dictionary. Uh, Rockmeister McCool. No one's done that one yet. Uh, yeah. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> um, I only really know Werner Herzog from interviews and various smaller acting roles. Mm. His ideas and persona do intrigue me, but I have not come around to watching any of his movies yet. Do you have a recommendation on where to best start in his filmography and what are your favorites of his uh, that you have seen, uh, if you have seen some or any of them. Your opinion is, always, as always, very much appreciated. And while I have your attention, here are some movies that I watched specifically because you recommended them. Uh, oh. Blind. Oh, great. Blind is a good one. Very uh, good movie. Wake in Fright. Wake in Fright is yeah. really intense. Uh, 301302, which you must have recommended. Cause I uh, it's a, it's a Korean one. horror movie. It scared the crap yeah. out of me. It's so uh, good. The Vast of Night. We, I think we both, we both like that one. Luca, get out uh, of that box. <laughs> the Handmaiden, uh, Don't Look Now, mm-hmm. uh, The Night of the Hunter, and Hagazusa. Oh, thank you for watching Hagazusa. Wow, that's, that's yeah. amazing. That's I hope li- you liked them. Those are, those are good movies. Yeah, I guess um, he would have stopped if he didn't like any of them. There are sure more that just don't come to me right now. Uh, but know that I value your criticism of various movies, and I usually know which movies I will probably like based on your reviews, positive or negative, so you're doing it right. Thank <laughs> you for your attention. Yours, The Windy. Oh, thank you. Uh, hello, the Windy. Well, uh, Werner Herzog. Very prolific uh, Werner Herzog. I totally yeah. understand being daunted about where to begin. I haven't seen most of his movies. How, how are you in Werner Herzog? Have you seen a lot of his films? Or, um, he's made like dozens well, of documentaries, probably at least 20 narrative features. You know, I was about to say, I've seen about 
20 of his movies. Um, well, it's more than I have. So, yeah. okay, I guess you're the best where, person to start with. Where do you here. start with Herzog? Start with A Gear of the Wrath of God. That's okay. probably one of his best. It also has, like, all of his themes in it. It was one of the ones I saw. I saw it at age 12, which is, you know, really intense. It's about a bunch of conquistadors looking for El Dorado and how the woods, the, how the jungle drives them mad. Yeah. That's essentially it. And they filmed on location, so everybody's just sort of suffering and miserable and lost in the woods. And uh, Klaus Kinski, uh, who worked with Herzog numerous times, uh, plays the uh, essentially the main character who goes the craziest of them all. And uh, Klaus Kinski plays a maniac better than most anybody. <laughs> Because That's, he's kind of a maniac. No, oh my god. There's a movie he did called Crawl Space, mm. uh, which was, apparently he was so difficult, like, and so, like, just, like, b- weird to work with that, mm. like, the director ended up making a short film called something along the lines of, please kill Klaus Kinski. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, in in the late '90s, uh, Herzog ended up making a documentary about Kinski called "My Best Fiend." Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was just about how horrible their working relationship was, and yet they kept working together because they felt they made good movies together. Yeah, uh, and indeed they did. Yeah, um, he's yeah, great. So, he's great in Nosferatu, the Vampire. I like that one a lot. Yeah, uh, maybe don't start with Nosferatu. Oh no, 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 no! It's, it's it's a remake. It's a very good remake, actually. Mm. Like if you think like you're remaking the German classic silent film Nosferatu, which is one of the most important and influential films. Uh, you think like it would German film specifically because German the, and yeah. horror films, yeah, I yeah. think specifically. Uh, and you would think to yourself like, Oh, how could they possibly make it? What? Herzog made a great fucking movie out of it. And it actually feels a little different and new. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, don't start with that. That would be like, that would be like what, what Martin Scorsese should you start with? Cape fear. That's a great movie, but that's not doesn't like really it's feel not like, like Scorsese's over. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, start with the Gear of the Wrath of God. That's move, a good one. Move on to the double feature of Fitzcarraldo and Les Blanks' Burden of Dreams, the documentary that goes with Fitzcarraldo because mm-hmm. they do go together, uh, and and Strojak from 1977. That one's really really great. Uh, I um, also recommend. I'm going to throw in one that I don't think gets enough attention. Uh, it's a film called The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. Which is mm. sometimes are called, and I think this is one of the best titles ever, Every Man for Himself and God, God Against... God Against All. Like, yeah. God Against All. Holy shit. But it's a story about, like, a boy who was, like, raised in the woods. Mm. Like, totally wild, like, free from civilization, and how he was having trouble adjusting. And, mm. uh, again, you kind of see that movie in your head, but Herzog doesn't go in the place you're going to mm. go with it. Um, but documentaries, though, are really important for Herzog as well. What do you recommend starting for uh, documentaries? Um, let's see. Uh, Fata Morgana, maybe? Hmm. I've, I've seen less of his documentaries, and, and okay. of those, it's been like the more recent ones, like yeah. um, like from my my best fiend on. So, uh, Grizzly Man was uh, a kind of caused a ripple back in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something I recommend. Yeah, uh, if you want to get, I think, a sense of like the dreaminess mm-hmm. of Herzog and how he approaches topics differently than other filmmakers would. A recent one that I quite liked was called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, oh, which about, is... About the internet. Yeah, yeah, it's just various musings about the internet. And he finds people who are at the forefront of the internet, people whose lives have been ruined by the internet in ways that you might not even predict. While people who are like actual like doomsayers about the internet and about how our reliance on the internet is eventually going to completely screw us over as, mm-hmm. a, as, as a planet. Um... And it's it's maybe it lacks like a point he's trying to make, but he's not trying to make a point. He's musing, yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of documentarians are kind of afraid to do is just sort of riff and like explore the various aspects of something mm-hmm. rather than make a strong argument. And sometimes they can't make strong argument because they're not 
making an argument very well, but mm. Herzog just wants you to think about the possibilities, and so that's an mm-hmm. interesting one. I think might be a good mm. way in. And of course, uh, even though he didn't direct it, uh, you should absolutely see Incident at Loch Ness. <laughs> it's a Zach Penn film where uh, Herzog plays himself. Yeah. Uh, as uh, uh, and Zach Penn plays himself, and the uh, idea is. Zach Penn wants to make a documentary about the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, Werner Herzog doesn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster, so he's essentially going to make a documentary about sort of the way people are obsessed about the Loch Ness Monster and kind of how futile and strange that is. Uh, But Zach Penn has decided to sort of sex up his own documentary by staging certain things, and maybe they saw the documentary, and uh, the narrator is like a bikini model, like all these really ridiculous things and of uh-huh. course as the film progresses you realize they're being stalked by the actual Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, it ends up turning into a horror movie with Werner Herzog playing himself as he's making a documentary about the Loch Ness Monster and there are scenes in the movie of him just like firing a gun into the water trying to kill the Loch Ness Monster. We must kill the Loch Ness Monster. Zach Penn hasn't always been attached to good movies but that one brief moment he gave us something very special. Mm. So kudos to Zach Penn for that. <laughs> anyway, hopefully that gives you a place to start. Again, we haven't seen everything Herzog has done, and Whitney's mm-hmm. seen more than I have, but Herzog is a fascinating individual. I'm sure you know that just from, like, osmosis or just what what yeah. you've seen. But, um, yeah, his films are typically very incredible. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. All right, uh, here is a letter from uh, J-Lo, not that one. Ah. Hello, J-Lo. Um, Greetings, gents. I keep waiting to hear one of my letters, and I realize I haven't written one in some time. Okay. Uh, while the 2010s Oscars, uh, 83 to 92, were a rocky ride, I think it's fascinating to look at the dominance of the four filmmakers of the decade. Uh, between four Mexican filmmakers, they took home one, uh, one for Best Editing, one for Best Screenplay, one Special Achievement Award for v- v- uh, VR Filmmaking, mm-hmm. one Best Foreign Language Film, two Best Pictures, four for Best Cinematography, uh, including three consecutive by one photographer, and five Best Director Statues, that is uh, Alfonso Cuaron, mm-hmm. Alejandro Iñárritu, Guillermo del Toro, and Emmanuel Lubezki had a dominant decade at the Oscars. Uh, That's true. They, they were yeah. absolutely dominant forces in cinema. It's true. Yeah. My question, uh, of the five features these men won awards for, how would you rank or grade them with some with mm. some time removed now? The films in question are Gravity, Birdman, The Revenant, The Shape of Water, and Roma. Uh, what are your thoughts on the filmmakers themselves? For me, Roma continues to go up, in my opinion. I was pretty cool after watching it on Netflix, but found myself weeping in the front row when I finally got to see it in a theater. Uh, best regards, J-Lo, not that one. Okay, uh, well, you were talking about three filmmakers who, to varying degrees, I think, have been doing an excellent job of pushing cinema. Mm. Uh, and, and in totally different directions, too. I mean, like, they're all boosters of each other's work. It's my understanding that they're all friends. But uh, Alfonso Cuaron is very much um, absolutely a technical filmmaker, and he's been really pushing what is possible with visual mm. effects in terms of how they can tell a story. Roma, which might seem like a small film, was actually loaded with visual effects. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that was it was made digitally, and you can't tell. Yeah. And it actually gives it a really much better sense of place yeah. than it would have been if they actually had filmed authentically. I think Roma yeah. Roma is terrific. I, you're a bigger it's, fan yeah. than I am, but I do appreciate it, and I think in terms of just its overall visual presentation, it's mm. absolutely impeccable. Um, 
Like, then you have uh, Inuritu. And Inuritu is a filmmaker who I'm really hot and cold on, quite frankly. Yeah, he's, I think he's, he's made a few few that I like and a lot I hate. I think Beautiful is a genuinely bad motion picture. Oh, Beautiful is terrible. It's just, it's not a good film. Yeah, and, but and, and, and I do not like Babel. Oh, Babel. I don't like it either. I don't yeah. think that's a good film. I didn't like 21 Grams, but I did like some of his other stuff. I think The Revenant is a very good film for what it does. I mm-hmm. think uh, Birdman, it wouldn't have been my choice for best picture, but I appreciate it as an accomplishment in and of itself. Mm-hmm. He's interesting because he's kind of in the middle of Quaron and Del Toro in some ways, whereas Del Toro is a very, um, a very emotional filmmaker, and a lot of his movies. Luca, seriously, are we doing this again? I'll, I'll, you keep talking. Thank you. Like, Guillermo Del Toro's movies are very much based off of pure emotion, and he uses fantasy and, and technical elements to sort of explore those emotions. I think Quaron does that too, but I think he gets way more wrapped up in the technicals uh, than Del Toro does. Mm. And then you have Inuritu, who makes these extremely in-your-face melodramas. They're just really heightened to the extent that sometimes I find them off-putting. But then he'll marry that to this incredible technical craftsmanship where he has been especially this decade been pushing really really hard to do entire sequences and these incredibly complicated super long takes mm-hmm. that's all birdman is of course they they fudge the, it, it with editing but it's still an impressive effect like mm-hmm. it's a neat looking film um so yeah I, if i had a favorite it would probably be del toro <laughs> maybe Quaron. Mm-hmm. I, I i just find that inuritu lets me down sometimes yeah um, what about you? Just in terms of the filmmakers uh, themselves, and we'll talk about the films individually. I uh, that's the thing is is I'm not like uh, an unabashed fan of any one of them because yeah. they've all let me down. Sure, uh, I'm a lot of people like all of Quaron's movies. I wasn't a huge fan of Children of Men. I think that it was a little too obvious for me, and I think a lot of the the stylish flourishes were more important than, you know, character story or even the sequence. I think it's a great uh, watch, but it's, yeah. it hasn't stuck with me the way some of his other films have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah in Yuri 2's early films, I, I think, are just garbage. I think okay. he's made a lot of really bad movies. But then, yeah, I did also I did respond positively to Birdman. I think Revenant is pretty good. I think yeah. it's a, a kind of a, a slick Hollywood A production style uh, version of, like, a 50s adventure movie. Yeah, but with, like, a a real, like, grimy, ugly spaghetti western. Like, the the despicable spaghetti westerns. We didn't see that often in theaters, but you can find them on home video. And they're just violent and mean. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the revenant for you. And, uh, and... And as far as I'm concerned, Guillermo del Toro is like 50-50. Like okay. half of his movies sure. are half of his movies are uh, that was interesting to look at, but uh, and the other half are oh that was pretty good. And then the ones he made in Spanish are oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think his Spanish language films are like far outstrip anything he's made in English. They feel more personal, and yeah. I think that comes across on screen. Well, and, and they seem to be a lot more. Uh, complex because they deal yeah. with like uh, socio-political themes a lot of them deal directly with uh, the franco regime yeah for instance uh well, I think whereas, the shape of water does that too uh, to a, a little bit more thuddingly obvious degree Perhaps. i mean his, I, don't, his, I, his I, I don't know man i think pan's labyrinth is pretty on the nose if you really think about it i, like, I, I suppose so but there, there's a lot great, there's but... a lot more complex nuance in something like pan's right. labyrinth whereas the criticism of like 1950s conformity is isn't uh, any more nuanced than something in like Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, you know it's it's really just obvious imagery. 
Okay, fair enough. Um, well, let's talk about the individual sure. films real briefly. Just and, and so, yeah, yeah, the, we're not going to spend forever talking about. But let's, yeah, let's the, we start. We're on Gimbal Del Toro. Let's start with Shape of Water. All right. So a few um, years gone by. How do you feel about Shape of Water? What about mm-hmm. it works? What doesn't? What about it worked? Um, it, it's it's uh, touching. It's emotional. It's yeah. you know, it, it's uh, a film that made me cry, even if I don't love it. <laughs> I, I can cry at movies I hate. Uh, yeah. It's just just because it touches me deeply it doesn't mean I like the movie. Yeah, uh, like a lot of people mm. have made me cry, and I I didn't like them. They were <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's so like some movies. It's like oh, you like you know how to manipulate me, but I know this is bullshit. That's you know, how that it was the first thing. time I saw Beautiful Mind. I was like, yeah. this is well crafted, but I'm mad at it yeah. because I know what they're doing. <laughs> and then the second time I watched it, I couldn't even appreciate it on that level yeah. because it's just so obvious. Man. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people felt the same way about Titanic. Ah, uh, Titanic my, holds up better than those. My, my, yeah, my, my sister yeah. gave me a good line, though, when she saw Titanic. She said, I cried. And then I was angry at the man for making me cry. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, um, Shape of Water, I think, is is sweet. I don't think it's uh, as impactful as it wants to be. Hmm. Because I think it deals with really obvious symbolism. And there's yeah. something about uh, Guillermo del Toro's style that uh, I think only works part of the time. Uh, he makes very artificial-looking movies. These movies don't take place in the natural world. Uh, no, uh, generally not, no. Yeah, even when he's showing the natural world, it's this really sort of stylized, muddied version of like, it. Like, look, look at how he films uh, like the scenes that are just in New York in mm-hmm. Mimic, and it looks like you're in Silent Hill. Like, yeah, everything, looks, ev- everything really, looks... Even yeah. in Pan's Lara, the movie I love, uh, everything looks like a set. And yeah. uh, and I think that's, that's a choice. He's trying yeah. to make things that look really artificial. And when he's going for a story that is going for a certain kind of very immediate emotional authenticity, I think his style undercuts it a little bit. That's fair. As such, I think uh, The Shape of Water is, uh, to hammer on a critic-friendly word, imperfect. Um, well, most things are imperfect. I, I, I know, I mean, but I, I, I hate to use it because it's kind of a meaningless critic word. Well, it but, makes uh, it so, it's, it basically, what you're saying is the movie is good, but the flaws are getting in the way of me fully appreciating it. There, that's, well, and that's fair to say. Yeah. The Shape of Water is not my favorite Del Toro movie. Mm-hmm. I generally like Del Toro's aesthetic. I generally like the way that he tells stories, whether they're goofy stories or serious mm-hmm. stories. I, I connect to him. I appreciate that there are different types of uh, films he makes. Um, a Shape of Water, I think, you know, it, it's at its best when it's telling its human stories. Like, everything with Richard Jenkins is really great. No, the Richard Jenkins stuff is great. All of that stuff is really, really wonderful. The, some of the monster stuff is really, really great, but also some of it is pretty contrived. Um, mm-hmm. It's really easy to point to. Luca, get away from the trash cans, buddy. <laughs> every, Luca, what is your deal week. today, man? He stole a donut earlier. We had to take it away from. Oh, it's him. the, sh- it's the sugar. He's, he he's, might be sugared he's up. Sugar, he's all sugared up right now. Luca, nobody. Okay, I need to. I need to go get him. <laughs> I need to go get him. But the Luca, musical number is uh, sweet, but it's also really indulgent. Yeah, I think yeah. That's, yeah. Let's let's just let's just put you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's go to the two oh, from Alfonso Cuaron. But, did, but anyway, uh, I like it a lot, and I will just... I know this last thing I want to say, it's weird that a movie about falling in love with an actual, honest-to-goodness, like, universal horror monster... Mm-hmm wasn't a surprise Best Picture winner. It was like, yeah, it was this weird sort of, oh, it's inevitable. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, Get Out could win. That would be the cool one. But instead we'll get Shape of Water. And I'm like, that's about falling in love with the Gill Man. <laughs> and that's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But like, I think it's, it's so weird that that was the safe choice that weird. year. What a weird year that was. I think it's just because you ask anybody, it's never higher than like an 8.5 out of 10 mm. on their on their rating scale. Yeah, it's, it's like, all about what they I can really agree like, on, but, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
No. Wait, um, Quaron, what do you think of Gravity and of Roma? Uh, I'm on I'm on record as saying I think Gravity is basically a perfect film. Uh, I love Gravity. I had a very visceral response to watching Gravity the first time I watched it. And I've seen it since, and it had that as well. But the first time you see it, especially in like 3D in a giant theater, because yeah, that movie is very immersive, um, is was, was a very revelatory experience. I think Gravity is one of the best big-budget Hollywood movies Mm -hmm. of this generation. And I think it's because, even though it has obvious thrills, it's incredibly intense and exciting, and the odds are completely overwhelming. I'm a sucker for movies in which a character is completely just screwed Mm -hmm. and just trying to find not just a way to live, but a reason to, because the universe is out to get them. And I think Quaron likes those too. And I think what gravity ultimately becomes is an allegory for trying to find a reason to live. And in, in like this could be seen as a movie that is not just a blockbuster, but kind of an intervention. Mm-hmm. And I really responded to that. I, as someone who has had dark thoughts, I really responded to that movie. I, I think that movie is really, really quite brilliant. Mm. Luca's falling asleep, so I'm taking a picture of it. He's, he's in um, my arms, and he's falling asleep, and he's <laughs> getting some live cat pictures on this podcast. Nice. Um, I I like Gravity. I don't love it. Okay. Uh, I I find it to be just sort of a, a really impeccably made disaster picture. Mm-hmm. All of those things about finding a reason to survive is actually a very common element in all disaster pictures. Yeah, but I think I, Gravity I actually gets away with it, though, whereas oh, I think yeah. a lot of times it feels incidental. I, I feel like it's just as incidental in Gravity uh, as it is, is in the other... Uh, Disaster films I've seen. I, mean, I disagree. Fair uh, I mean, you go to something like Twister. It's in there, but it's that's not in. that's, that's, that's a comedy. Is, that's no, a comedy Twister film, is about so. not getting divorced. Oh, that's what Twister right, is. Right. Twister Twi- isn't about Twister that, is about yeah. divorce. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Twister is a bad example. Yeah, San Andreas um, also about divorce. Like a lot of them are about <laughs> a lot of them are about how when disasters oh, God, strike. It was, 20, it was 2012 as well. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, no, and it, San Andreas is a little later. And it oh, the movie twenty twelve. Sorry, I thought yeah. you were saying San Andreas got in twenty twelve. No, the movie twenty twelve. Yeah, it was also, also about, about a divorce. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Uh, so yeah, the worst I, thing uh, that could possibly happen in a natural disaster is mom and dad yeah. were breaking up. Yeah, and so I, I feel like uh, if if you're not seeing if. I don't know if it would have the same effect on a small screen. I haven't seen it since I saw it on this big IMAX screen. Yeah. And it was really impressive on an IMAX screen, but I think that sort of visual elements, that the special effects were kind of the selling point of, of something like Gravity. I, I think I think when it loses in scale, I actually think it gains in intimacy, and I think the character stuff is even stronger okay. on the on the small screen. But mm. um, in any case, fair enough. And mm. uh, let's, while we're on Quaron, Roma, which you uh, love Roma. and I, I Yeah, really I, like. I love Roma. Roma, uh, it, it doesn't just feel like he's paying homage to, uh, like, Italian new wave films. It's very Fellini. It, it's incredibly Fellini. It, it's yeah. it's even called Roma. With Fellini, well, Fellini, yes. Fellini made a film called Roma. Oh, you know, um, fair enough. I mean, yeah, uh, he's calling his shots. No one's, yeah. no one's pretending um, otherwise. But it feels like. Um, it doesn't feel like it's an homage. It feels like it's actually one of those things. Like it is, it is that straightforwardly uh, the same sort of raw intimacy, the same sort of class consciousness, the same sort of political points, and the same sort of just pure cinematic beauty. Mm. Uh, yeah, Roma is is really really terrific. Uh, I, I, I everything you're saying, mm. I mostly agree with, except I see a lot of those things as detriments because <laughs> Fellini drives me up the wall. I just I, I've um, never really connected to Fellini. Mm. Um, I find his films very indulgent and sometimes sincerely so and sometimes falsely so. Mm. And I got that I got both impressions from Roma. There are whole bits in Roma that feel incredibly intense and personal and other bits that feel really forced to me. 
Hmm. Um, and as a result, the movie just felt a little... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say slapdash. That makes it sound like it wasn't, or you know, intricately designed. I was about to say it's really. Uh, it, it, it's a little all over the place for me, and I think he's yeah, trying right. to do all kinds of things at once. And I think he's not successful at every single one of those things. But it's still mm-hmm. a very good movie. So that's just I'm just trying to explain why I didn't love it. Basically, all right. yeah. So, but it's still a very good movie. There you go. And uh, and then the uh, Inuritu films, Inuritu. which were Bird, Birdman and the Revenant, which we talked about a little bit already. A little bit, uh, but uh, Birdman. Um, I think Birdman connected with Oscar voters because it's about Hollywood. Mm. It is about uh, a big Hollywood movie star who is trying to make real art and how difficult that is. And I actually think that all of the absolute like intensity and wackiness of that movie is making a lot out of some pretty simple points. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, I feel like he's kind of hiding how kind of almost insecure the movie is like with its mm. own subject matter yeah, by I, making I it that. incredibly technically complicated. Mm. Um, that being said, it's still a good watch. I never would have voted for it for Best Picture. Best Cinematography, definitely. Maybe yeah. Best Actor, but... Best best picture? Mm. No, I think it's I think it's oh, like yeah. I think it's I think it's disguising the fact that it's kind of just okay with a lot of flash, mm-hmm. and that's not the end of the world. That's there are movies that can't even do that right. So mm. kudos, but I, I don't love it for that reason. No, I, I feel about Bird Birdman and the Revenant uh, the same way, in that I think that they're really powerful low budget movies turned into big budget movies. Kind of, yeah. I, I feel like something like can you imagine if someone like Tom DeSillo had made something like Birdman? Yeah. Uh, he did Living in Oblivion, and uh, these kinds might not of, even have been seen, even if it was the exact same movie. Exactly, yeah. I, I, and I feel like if it had this sort of like low budget, scrappy indie, indie sensibility, a lot of the points would have come across a lot more powerfully. I feel the same way about the Revenant. If the Revenant was just like a bunch of guy, like maybe a dozen guys, and they're all guys because that's a guy movie are going out into the woods and just sort of shooting something and faking the bear attack, maybe having a guy mm-hmm. in a bear suit. You have one shot of a real bear. Yeah. Uh, and it, it feels a little bit cheap. I think a lot of the rawness would have come out of something like The Revenant. They had to fake those movies. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, think, I think DiCaprio brings a lot of the reality into it because he put himself through so much hell. But it's I just, also think he but his performance def- isn't good. Is I, the problem? I, I think his performance is good. I right. think his performance is anywhere but his best performance. Like, and like I actually it's, think it's I, authentic, but it's not great. <laughs> I think forcing him to go through what he went through on that film was actually irresponsible. Yeah. I think that was actually well, not he, fair to I, ask. He, I know. I don't care. He, if he, he might have asked for it. I don't care know. if he asked for it. You could ask me for a lot of things. I'm not going to give it to you. Well, you know. Well, like, Hey, can I have a nuclear bomb? No. <laughs> That's irresponsible. I'm not giving I, I, you that. Look, if, if an actor is willing to abuse themselves for their craft, that's their business. I don't think it's just their business. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I think it's a lot of people's business. Yeah. So, But listen, I'm not trying to just finger wag at it. I just oh, That's right. something that kind of like sullies the movie a little bit for me because everything I heard about what he mm-hmm. did just feels like... Man, that's not fun. I can't yeah, really enjoy yeah. your movie now. Well, uh, like, I will like, say I think Tom Hardy is really brilliant in that movie. I think yeah. Tom Hardy absolutely <laughs> deserved his yeah. Academy Award nomination it's for that t- film. And I think I would have voted for him. He's amazing in that. He, he's, he's like Pat Morita. He won't take a role unless he gets to do a goofy voice. <laughs> Pat, <laughs> Morita, Pat Morita is uh, the, the late, great Pat Morita, from the, uh, best known for the Karate Kid, has, is on record for saying he won't take a role unless he gets to do a voice for it. Yeah. And so he's shown up in like uh, supporting roles. And he has this like weird, wild voice. Like, why are you doing that? 
That's that's my mandate. I get to do a silly voice, yeah. no matter what it is. I got to ask an animation for Karate to, Kid. Get, this is what a, I decided to, to spend that free money on. A dialect or something. Yeah. I get to do Some people get to do voice. a passion project. I just get to do dialects. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, listen, they're all fascinating but, filmmakers. Uh, yeah. And even if we don't love everything we do, I think we respect them all. I think they, mm-hmm. they do different things and bring different things mm-hmm. to cinema. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Tom, T-O-M, exclamation point, all capital letters. Hi, Tom. I'm uh, sorry. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Uh, hello, both. Uh, before I ask my question, I just wanted to extend a heartfelt thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, I am a teacher in the UK, and I oh. recently struggled during the lockdown slash quarantine. I've gone from working every day to being locked in my house, and it's been a big weight on my mind. I struggled really badly with depression while at university, uh, which is why I felt which I felt ruined my experience in a way. Mm. I was mostly alone in my dorm room watching movies instead of going out and meeting lifelong friends like everyone else was doing. My girlfriend has still been going to work every day during quarantine, so I found myself at home 24-7 and mostly alone. Your podcasts have been so helpful in keeping me sane, and I'm re- I've recently signed up for your Patreon as well. It's the least all I can do for all you've done for me. Oh, thank you so much. Well, thank much. you, Tom. I'm glad we can be of um, help. Yeah. I used to bottle up my feelings and just kept telling myself I'm fine, I'm just being dramatic, but hearing people I look up to, such as Bibbs, talk about his mental health has made me open up and seek help, and no longer I no longer feel ashamed of how I feel or what I feel. And, and uh, you shouldn't, and, and I'm really, really glad that, that things are turning around. That's yeah, really great. I'm yeah, really happy to hear that. Glad, glad we can help in some aspect. Yeah, even in a way. tiny little way, uh, I'm just glad we're able to help. So again, I just wanted to say thank you for helping me through this really tough time. Anyway, my question. Okay. Uh, has there ever been an announcement of a director-slash-movie combo that made you scratch your head, but with, when the movie was released, you ended up loving it? Uh, mine was David Fincher and The Social Network. I had known mm. Fincher for his often disturbing thrillers like The Game and Seven. So when I heard he was making a film about Facebook, I was baffled. Why would he do this? Who would want this combination? Surely it couldn't work right. Well, I was wrong. I think The Social Network is one of the best films of the last decade. And I was so happy to eat crow on this one. Anyway, are there examples you can think of? Thanks again for all you do. Tom! All right, so the question is a weird like pairing of, of director and material, and then it actually turned out really good. Mm. Because the first thing I could think of was Spielberg and Ready Player One. And I was like, why would he want to do that? And mm. then I saw it. I'm like, I still don't get it. Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> I don't, still, it's I, actually I, not a good movie. It's, it's, kind it's, of, it's kind of not about his generation. So that's yeah. that's not a good example. Um, that was just the first thing that came to mind. The, the one that really baffled me is uh, I saw a preview for, uh, before, I think it was before a kid flick, okay. uh, for a Disney film. It was rated G and it was directed by David Lynch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like a weird wait, one, yeah. wait, what? He made a film called The Straight Story, and it was yeah, it's rated G, yeah. live action G rated film about a guy who writes a writing mower. And you watch it, and you're like, this is so David Lynch. Mm-hmm. This is like oh, right up his alley. It's and, one of his better movies. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, really well, it's, it's one of his more humane movies. His wow. movies tend to be about sort of like abstract dream versions of humans, and this one's that one of the few that's actually kind of emotional and about mm-hmm. real humanity. Like that one and the Elephant Man are like the only ones that are really kind of touching. Mm. Uh, but it, it is all about also about just sort of the strangeness of the small town, something you've seen in things like Blue Velvet and, and in Twin Peaks. Uh, it, it feels like a weird emotional offshoot of those products yeah. and uh, products, those projects. Sorry, yeah, uh, yeah. Films product. I, I'm talking, <laughs> talking like an asshole. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that one really, really shocked me that David Lynch would decide to make a G-rated film for Disney and it turned out to be just a, another one of his films. Um, I, I'll tell you one that finally just occurred to me. Um, uh, it's a movie we've talked about a lot, but I think it's worth remembering that now that we know it's great, there was a time when it was a big question mark. And that's Get Out. You got Jordan Peele, like mm-hmm. the, the co-star of Key and Peele, one of the better sketch comedy uh, shows of the last... I, don't know, I guess 20 years now I'm trying to think of when it got started it was the late 90s mm-hmm. or early 2000s 
Uh, and he had already done, uh, he already starred in uh, Keanu, which is actually one of the funnier movies of the that's, last that's really 10 years. Good, that movie's yeah. amazing, but it's a great, broad, farcical comedy. And now he's going to do a horror movie, and we're all like, oh, that, that, that could be kind of interesting. I wonder what he's going to do. And then you see it, and it's the best fucking thing ever. <laughs> and it is so salient and smart and so beautifully written. Like, you watch it, over, every time you watch that movie, you notice new nuances. And you realize that not only did this person who is famous for comedy actually have a really great affinity for horror. And he knew mm. the interlocking you know, mechanisms between comedy and horror. And how they actually are can play very similarly and he managed to manipulate them very strongly but he's also a very smart sensitive person who had a lot of interesting things to say and he's also just fantastic going back to it fantastic at structure mm. like absolutely <laughs> he went from being like a really really great comedian and we can respect the hell out of him and he's really funny to being one of the maybe great filmmakers of his generation at least he's got the possibility well, there he's, he's got he, the potential he's got potential he's made one, one very good film one iffy film like one ambitious but kind of an ambitious failure i'd call it i, I wouldn't call it a failure i know i know i like us more than you do mm-hmm. I, us i think doesn't necessarily like hasn't developed its concept as tightly as get out mm-hmm. does and i i kind of like that anyway though it gets, got, got kind of this dream logic kind of to it but uh, it, I still think it's ambitious and exciting and mm. different. And and Winston Duke is amazing in that movie. That, that, Everyone's Winston talking about Lu, Lu, Lupita Nyong'o. She's good. She's Win, great too. Winston Duke is really good too. They both should have been Oscar nominated. Yeah. They both should have been Oscar nominated. That movie should have been Oscar nominated for, at the very least, best actress, mm. best actor, supporting actor, whatever you want to put him in is fine. And yeah, best and best score. Yeah. Best, that score yeah. is phenomenal <laughs> in that movie. That score is a great horror score. Yeah, the, the, the riff on I Got Five on it is just great. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant mm. horror riff. Like, I love that mm. shit. Oh, I... Mm. Surely you... I think I, sh- I showed it to you, actually. It was um, when mm. uh, Disneyland was threatening to reopen <laughs> yeah. in, the midst of, in the midst of the pandemic, and they put out this ad. It's a really, like, chilling ad about uh, how everybody's... At Disneyland, all the employees are getting things ready, and they're all wearing their masks and arranging chairs. Look, Disneyland is ready again, and as we're doing it safely. <laughs> everything's social distanced, and it's it's like the creepiest shit you've ever seen. It's like yeah. there, there's somebody on a horse in the distance waving at you, and it's Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Is she diseased? Oh, God, this is a zombie film. I'm waiting to happen. And, uh... Many, many people immediately took out the audio and started putting in, like, the Shining soundtrack or yeah. the Suspiri music. And my favorite was the the soundtrack to Us. It was yeah. I've Got Five on it. And, like, all these creepy sound effects. I have another one that a lot of people hate, but you and I have mm-hmm. frequently defended. It's uh, Gus Van Zandt's Psycho. Gus Van Zandt's Psycho is... is Weird. It, it's, it's a weird project. way more interesting than people give it credit for. Gus Van Zandt started off as this fascinating indie filmmaker who made mm. a lot of celebrated queer films. Mm. And then he made a big Oscar winning mm. uh, a drama written by two, you know, Hollywood the, the hot hotshots. Yeah, Hollywood hotshots. Hot like, yeah. You know, young actors who had, like, been supporting roles in a lot of things but never quite had their big break. And they wrote them for themselves. And they got Oscar nominated. And they won an Oscar for screenplay. And it was Goodwill Hunting, and the movie's fine. <laughs> it's a it's a sweet it's, movie. It's, I like Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, it's a good movie. You got nothing against it, really. You got a little overblown, but who cares? Mm-hmm. But Gus Van Zandt went from being this like indie darling to someone who actually had a lot of clout. And what did he use it for? He wanted to remake Psycho. Not just Shop, re- yeah, not, yeah, not just remake, not just remake it. Sh- Psycho, but he had a, this experimental idea. Yeah, he wanted to remake Psycho from the exact same. Uh, uh, 
uh, coverage. Co- yeah, all, all the exact same shots as Psycho. Yeah, we're going to do the same story, shots. Storyboard was the word I was flirting. Yeah, we're going to do um, the same shot Psycho did. They're going to last the same amount of time Psycho did. Mm. And we're just going to remake not just Psycho the story, but Psycho the film. Mm. And a lot of people were asking, the fuck point is that? And... There was a lot of theories going on initially where it was like, oh, wait, this has got to be a big reversal, right? We're going to get to, like, the shower scene and all of a sudden it'll be, like, super bloody and then the whole movie will be different from there on. Which also would have been fun. But that's not what he did. No, no, he's <laughs> he stuck with it. Stuck with it. He added a few weird flash frames for no concernable re- conceivable reason, I can it's, imagine. It's nightmarish. It's, I guess. It's, it's scary. It's uh, I, thought, I thought it was scary. It's pretty thin, though. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of unnecessary and kind of against the purpose mm-hmm. of the film. But the movie itself... Doesn't work. However, a it's still watchable. Mm-hmm. Still, it's still, it's still interesting. To watch. Oh, yeah. It's still interesting to watch. And as an experimental film, again, the experiment didn't work, but that doesn't mean the experiment didn't have value. And the movie kind of proves that there's more to movies than just a storyboard. Mm-hmm. And that's something even Hitchcock would sometimes brag about. Oh, I just I just shoot the storyboard and it's done. And mm-hmm. Gus Van Sant kind of proved no. Hitchcock actually brought more to it than that. And uh, look, I shot your same storyboard yeah. in the, in 1998. And I'm a good uh, filmmaker, and he's a good filmmaker, mm-hmm. and he just he couldn't do the same fucking thing. Like it's more. I think he proved a very interesting point about cinema, mm-hmm. even though the movie wasn't great. But that was. What if he had proved the opposite? What if it had been as good? And all of a sudden, we had, like, a whole bunch of, like, right? Wouldn't that have been worse? <laughs> we have all these, like, shot-for-shot remakes and just, like, all weird and pointless. <laughs> and he kind of, like, made a point about remakes where you have to make them your own. Otherwise, mm. they are pointless because you can't just copy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's an interesting film. It, it, it's an interesting film. It shows, I think it, what it really revealed is uh, when you're using modern film techniques and modern film cameras and modern acting styles, mm-hmm. you know, f- these films are three decades removed. Uh, uh, yeah, s- 60 and 98, nearly, so almost, almost 40, 40 years yeah. removed. Yeah. Uh, and a lot had evolved in cinema since then. Uh, Psycho, uh, Gus Van Sant's Psycho was shot in color, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I think That was it, an odd change. I don't know if I agree I, with I th- that. But yeah. Well, even if he had shot it, in bl- shot it in black and white, he would have shown that... Uh, filmmaking is very much of its time, mm-hmm. and how we ter- come to appreciate films usually stems directly from the era in which it came. Yeah. Uh, telling the Psycho story exactly the same way in 1988, if there were never a 1960 Psycho, that would have failed. I think the 1998 yeah. film would not have been a success. Oh, I don't think it would have. I mean, mm. Maybe the twist would have been cool, because Psycho kind of introduced that kind of twist. No, but, no yeah, it, it, would have been, been it would have been seen as this weird kind of, uh, you know, indie film reversal but this film also came after you know um films like pulp fiction were already, were already yeah. kind of changing the way popular narratives were being uh, presented uh, on, in, on the other hand it's cinema. kind of a fallacious argument because you can't remove psycho from the cinematic history and get the same history i know it's one true, of those yeah. it's one of those like loads load bearing films where if you remove it all of history <laughs> some, some other films would not have existed. like, like you can yeah. remove a lot of movies and the history would be basically the same but mm-hmm. you can't remove psycho you no. can't remove uh, Wizard of Oz. You can't remove some big movies. Star Wars. <laughs> if you remove Star Wars, the history of the last forty years of cinema is completely different. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah. true. Yeah, I, I st- maybe for the better. I don't know, yeah, but like I, it's definitely different. I, I maintain though that if if that kind of story told in that way were to have first come out in 1998, people would not have noticed that. Yeah, um, yeah, I, you're probably uh, so, right. Yeah. I just think it, it, for me, I get caught up on the details right. of that time travel scenario. Hey, uh, another letter. Yeah, um, we got one time for one or two more. Here's a letter from Craig. Hi, Craig. Hi, Craig. Um, hello, Sir Bibbs and Emperor McCool. Uh, You're a knight. I have an empire. Yes. Um, what is thy bidding, my master? I am the empire of the inland. Um, 
<laughs> emperor of the... Uh, if, if, it's called the Inland Empire, but who's the emperor? You. I guess so. Yeah. I'm, I'm the Inland em- Emperor. Um, yeah. I hope this email finds you both doing well. This is my first time writing you, so oh. I have to start by thanking you for the hours and hours I've spent with you since discovering your podcast. It's actually Bib's appearance on the Nerd Goat po- podcast ah. discussing Charles Foster Kane that led me to seek you two out. I have, that was a great fun show. <laughs> I, I liked have, that a lot. I have to say that being able to listen to the two of you talk film and TV has made my life so much more enjoyable. I hate, wow. hate, hate my job. <laughs> and getting to pop in my earbuds and travel down to the Cancel Too Soon road with you makes it wildly more bearable. Well, I'm yeah, glad I'm, we can I'm, help. I'm glad we can, be the, we can lend sucker to sucky jobs. Uh, in a recent episode, forgive me if I've listened to many, uh, hmm. you made a brief mention of the Exorcist films. Hmm. In particular, you quipped about how no one really likes the first sequel. This is true. Um, well, there's one in every group, isn't there? Okay. And in this case, I guess I have to raise my hand, clear my throat, and admit, I'm the one. Okay. And I know that I may be the only one, and I understand why, but honestly, yes, I do find some strange enjoyment in watching Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Of course, that wasn't always the case. The first time I saw it, many years ago now, my reaction was similar to everyone else's, and I was rather disappointed. But it was so different and so strange that it wound up being one of those movies that I had to revisit, and I did find more to like about it, about the experience over time. At the end of the day, it is without question an inferior follow-up to the original, but unlike the other films in the series, it takes some risks and swings for fences, and I guess I give filmmakers credit for creativity, Hmm. if not for success. Uh, in fact, I had to laugh when you discussed it because I'm actually currently writing what I hope to be an interesting book about the, the heretic. Ooh, I want to um, read that. I, only that a few short cool. chapters along in the project, so I'm not sure how well it'll do in the long run. But yeah, I just had to share. Well, yeah, uh, when, totally. We wanted... when, that, when that book is out, we'll, we'll spread the word. Yeah, that sounds um, amazing. Uh, the Exorcist 2 wasn't the first, and I'm sure it won't be the last film that I wound up thinking differently about after a second viewing. Hmm. The same thing happened to me with the 2014 Steve Carell, Mark Ruffalo film Foxcatcher. Okay. The first time I saw it, I was bored. I found that in the weeks that followed, I kept thinking about it and had to revisit it. Now I love Foxcatcher. So I have to. Qu- I have a question to pose, and I'm sorry if you've already answered this in an early episode. Has that ever happened to you? Is there a film that on first watch you were unimpressed that for whatever reason you couldn't shake but felt compelled to revisit. Thanks very much for everything you do. Sincerely, Craig the Horror Meister. <laughs> uh, to, to speak about Exorcist to the Heretic, uh, you are not alone. Uh, mm. When we joked that nobody likes Exorcist to the Heretic, that is not stri- strictly true. Mm. Uh, apparently, Martin Scorsese likes that movie. <laughs> and probably, if I were to venture and, and guess, Quentin, it'd and, be for the same reason, because it's weird. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino likes the Lone Ranger, you know? Yeah, he, he put the Three Musketeers, the, the Paul W.S. Anderson version, on his top ten of the year. <laughs> Whatever. You see things in a movie, you see the positive, yeah, and yeah. that's fine. And, and your point is valid. The Exorcist to The Heretic. First off, The Exorcist, brilliant. Hmm. Exorcist 3. Brilliant, but they kind of screwed with it a little bit, so it's like kind of like half studio product, half fascinating and perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, prequels, they both suck. Mm. In fact, actually, the Rennie Harlan reshot version is way more watchable. Mm. <laughs> it's not even, they're not good, but that one's more watchable. Exorcist 2, directed by John Borman. Very interesting, weird filmmaker. Makes consistently interesting, weird films. Mm. Not all of them good, but he always swings for the fences, and I appreciate that. He brought in hypnosis machines and, like, bug monsters and all kinds of completely weird, bonkers shit. And he made a movie that was actually very grounded and was about just, like, secularism versus faith in the modern world. And he kind of made it all about these weird bells and whistles. And Mm. I don't think that works. I don't think he made it work. I don't think the whole structure of it bring it back again. I think it all collapses. I don't think it actually connects to anything super scary because 
all of the things happening on screen are highly implausible. There's mm-hmm. never like a, a, a foundation in reality. But it is weird. And if you want to give it bonus points for that, I totally get it. I <laughs> totally get it. I've done that too. I've given a lot mm-hmm. of movies bonus points for being weird. Um, okay, yeah, it's weird. I dig weird. I like when movies are bold enough to be weird. Um, it's fun to talk about movies that are weird. As critics, we look for the weird. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean they're good. Uh, well, and you know, that's true. I'll point to a film called Serenity, for instance. That's an odd ass film. <laughs> a really weird premise. It's really weird, and it sucks. Boy, does it suck. <laughs> We're talking specifically, the, the Joss Whedon one's fine. We're oh. talking about the Matthew McConaughey movie, which really sucks. Which really sucks. <laughs> it's really, it's like really One of the worst bad. films of the year. It's astonishingly hypnotically bad. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the great, the, both the best and the worst movies take big risks, and it's just a matter of whether or not they were uh, successful. It's yeah. going back to our psycho discussion. Uh, so I appreciate that The Heretic did do ba- some big swings, but at the same time, uh, when you put it right next to The Exorcist, it has the same title, mm. uh, and it's trying to deal with the same characters and the same concepts, but also like make it super modern and science fictiony. It, it's just a bad idea from the start. Uh, so I, I can't get behind The Exorcist too. I do like The Exorcist three. I, I feel like the two Exorcist fours uh, are <laughs> again a really interesting experiment, especially if you watch them back to back. I think. Yeah. Uh, one is the more intelligent, uh, interesting screenplay. The other one is the more watchable film. Both of them are bad. <laughs> they are both bad. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. Like, like, like there's, a, there's a good version between the two, but yeah, we didn't get either either of them mm. uh, but what's, to, but what, to come across. But what's a movie? And we've asked this question before, but yeah, there's but, always plenty of examples. Like there's, mm. There are movies that maybe we saw them on a bad day. Maybe we didn't get it. Maybe yeah, we were misled by trailers. But there's always a movie where you first time you watch it, you're like, eh. Yeah. Or or it's fine, mm-hmm. and then later on you realize actually that shit that fucking movie was amazing. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example: uh, the Man from Uncle. Okay, Man from Uncle. First time I saw it, I was like, "This is kind of cute." Mm-hmm. I'm done. Thanks. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized just how kind of brilliantly impassioned its style is, and how they turn the style into the substance, not because like it, we look cool and that's all we care about, but because the characters are obsessed with their own sense of style. Mm. And they actually made that really foundational to this really yeah. delightful riff on the spy genre. Mm. Um, it's very sexy, it's very funny. I think mm. it devolves into mindless action too much at the end, like more than it needs to even for yeah. its genre. Like the last 20 minutes of that movie are a blur. But it's really good, and it, I went from just kind of liking it to really fully, fully appreciating it. Okay, yeah. Um, what, this happened to me recently. Uh, when I saw The Searchers in college, oh, I, lo- I hated one. it. I really yeah. hated it. And I actually had that, like, really kind of passionately hated the movie. I thought it. I took it completely at face value. I thought it was treating racism as something heroic. I thought it was really dated. I didn't like the setting. I didn't like the characters. There's just nothing I liked about that movie. Uh, so yeah, I'm walking away from having seen it when I was you know 20 years old mm. uh, with just rancor in my heart. And just recently on uh, one of our uh, polls, we were uh, asked to review it by a listener. And I, so I revisited it. I'd watched it for the first time in over 20 years. 
and I ended up really liking it. It was uh, actually for episode zero. Oh, you're right. It was for episode zero. Yeah, Excuse so technically me. that wasn't um, a poll, but we we did revisit it. We did and revisit I, it, I yeah. wasn't a huge fan either, and mm. now I rewatched it now, and I'm like, so we smarter there's, than I gave there, it credit there's for. Actually, yeah, there's actually, yeah, there's a, a sort of this wonderful criticism of uh, that kind of American frontier spirit uh, that it was seen as very heroic in other movies, and I think in The Searchers is seen as very, uh, not just critical, but actually presents it as kind of something that's eroding the very soul of America. Um, you can bet someone like Paul Thomas Anderson has watched The Searchers a bunch because his movies are all about fundamental, quote, um, like big American notions and how they are actually one of the most poisonous things about this country. I, I think I've heard this. I'm trying to remember if this is an exact quote or not. But I think Steven Spielberg has said he watches The Searchers before he directs any movie. <laughs> and you buy it because mm. he's actually really big on a lot of the mm. a lot of what John Ford is doing in there. The iconography, yeah. uh, capturing uh, the visual expectations of the American dream while also showing the things that undermine it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, just the framing alone. Like he's mm. Spielberg's films, whether whatever cinematography he's working at, are masterfully framed. Um, so yeah, that's a good one. I, that's another one where like the first time I saw it, I'm like, first time I saw it, I'm like, this is okay. Mm. I, I, I see what this is a big deal. <laughs> Second time I saw it, I'm like, this actually kind of pisses me off. Mm. And then the last time I saw it, I was like, it still kind of pisses me off, but now I realize it's supposed to. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's I, supposed, it's supposed I to be really, yeah, that, yeah. Kind of a little bit of set That's so, a good example. So that's a movie that I think the search, or... there's some movies that when you, you, they're not designed for you when you're young. Yeah. They're not designed for people who have had certain, you know, haven't had lived certain experiences yet, mm. uh, and you only fully appreciate them after you've lived a little bit more. Like movies about death. Like if you haven't actually experienced death, mm. there's a like in your life, like you haven't lost someone, and, and I and I hope that's the case because mm. death and mourning is it sucks. Mm. Like I've gone through it; it really sucks. Like it's it's one of the worst things I've ever gone through, but. Uh, you know, before that happened, a lot of death scenes in movies, yeah, I understood what they were going through, but it was a little academic. Mm. And now I'm a sucker for them. Like, if, like, a, a, a meaningful death scene in a movie, like, I get it now. I totally see what you're getting at. You were approaching this on a level that I was not thinking about because mm. I had not lived through a similar experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, that's just uh, the that thing. actually you know? goes back to The Exorcist, in yeah. fact. I feel, I feel like... Um, can't rem when they re-released it in 2000 uh, a the lot version of version you've never yeah, seen the version you've never never seen uh, me and my peers uh you know i i turned 22 in the year 2000 yeah. so i was still pretty young and a lot of my peers were about my age and a lot of them hadn't seen the exorcist yet mm -hmm. and they kept on we all kept on hearing the reputation of it's the scariest thing you've ever seen it's actually a very quiet movie yeah it's a very slow paced movie it's about yeah. a parental anxiety and religious anxiety things that we hadn't experienced the fullest yet. Yeah, young people tend to have this idea of horror being violent mm. and eventful. And, yeah, Exorcist is a scary movie for middle-aged people. Mm. And if you are, if you've gone through some of the stuff in that movie, if you've had those doubts, if you've had sick people in your family and you don't know how to take care of them and you're starting to wonder, is this, is, am I cursed? Mm. Exorcist is fucking terrifying <laughs> it's really really scary yeah and like before then you might i remember first time i saw exodus i thought it was a little slow and now mm. i realize it's perfect it's a perfectly paced film but mm. it's not designed to mimic or even cater to the mindset 
of younger people necessarily, yeah, yeah. unless you've been through a lot. So I, I remember yeah. I remember reading something uh, Roger Ebert had written about uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. How he saw it as a young man uh, when it came out in the seventies, and well. He was an adult at that point, and, and but he was young. Came out. He but was yes, young. when he was a younger, Less mature. a younger man, and he saw it uh, the way I think a lot of people see it, where uh, Murphy, the Jack Nicholson character, mm-hmm. is seen as this sort of bold rebel who's fighting against a stifling system, and he's actually trying to open up the minds of these people who are being repressed by this horrible nurse, yeah. who's kind of a, the villain of the piece. And uh, ultimately, it's about how. The, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the tragedy about how those free spirits are ultimately just tamped down and destroyed. Yeah. Uh, he watched it many years later when he was, I think, in his 60s. Uh-huh. And he said, no, the hero of this film is Nurse Ratched. Yeah. And Murphy is the villain. Because yeah. she actually has a very important like system in place to help these people who need a lot of structure in their lives. Yeah. And forcing them to do these painful things, she's not doing because she's cruel. She's doing it because it actually helps them. And yeah. Murphy fucks it all up. And he's so determined to fuck it up that they have to shoot back at him, essentially. Yeah. So it actually and it becomes is a, a tragedy much, It becomes a much more like, yeah. complex drama if you yeah. see it as the drama of Nurse Ratched. And, and that's true for a lot of movies mm. where you revisit them and you realize you looked at them from one perspective and then you look at them from a new perspective mm. and you realize the movie is way more complicated and multifaceted. Uh, and that's true for a lot of films. Um, so, yeah. And we're going to keep doing that. I guarantee yeah, you. Yeah. Whitney and I, you know, hopefully we live for another thousand years Maybe. and uh, then we'll just keep another, revisiting these movies and we'll another, have their perspectives another two or three at least two please, two yeah. or three thousand years yeah <laughs> I don't know um and uh okay we have time for one more but might we make it quick okay. uh let's I had one little lined up there all right we go. all right here's a letter from Hayden one of our many Haydens hi Hayden um, uh, hello, as I continue to evolve as a horror fan, hmm. one of the genres I find myself defending is torture porn, uh, which I think has been labeled as mindless by the general public and by critics. Uh, in all well, actual- the, the, the name doesn't help. Uh, yeah, torture porn. Uh, in, in all actuality, I think many so-called torture porn is heavily politically minded, even if by accident. If you look at E.R. Ali Roth's hostile films, you'll notice that both are playing on societal themes. The first one evokes imagery of the leaked photos of the torture our country did on suspe- suspected terrorists during mm-hmm. the war in Iraq. A lot of people, a lot of critics have noticed that those torture films did experience a boom while America was torturing people. Yeah, and while um, it was it was publicized. Yeah, and it was, we and knew it was being it. Yeah, yeah. published. Uh, sadly, the film doesn't go all the way with its post-9-11 themes and plays into xenophobia. That's why I think Hostile Part 2 is maybe Roth's masterpiece. Mm. He sets his eyes on capitalism and showing how Wall Street bros view human bodies as a way to act out their sick fantasies simply because they have tons of money. The only way to beat the machine is to become a part of it. Uh, the highly underrated The Hills Have Eyes remake is one of the best films of the torture porn era and one of the most politically minded. The film does doesn't hold a great view of America and how it exploits the country's quote hit ba- hit back twice as hard mentality. Mm. But instead, the villains uh, here aren't foreigners, but our own citizens. The cannibals are victims taking revenge in order to survive. They're American rejects. In the end, the stereotypical Democrat has been pushed to the edge and partakes in savagery just as much as the family. For Christ's sake, he kills a cannibal with an American flag as the national anthem plays. Hmm. It can't get less subtle than that. The exact opposite is 2016's Terrifier. Did you see Terrifier? No. Yeah. I, I know that clown has made its way mm-hmm. into sort of like horror iconography. I heard it's scary. I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it. it. Yeah. Oh, which has nothing on its mind besides cruelty. I could keep going on with examples, but we'd be here a long time. Right. Just because a film has ideas doesn't make it good. Uh, but I think it can make it them worth analyzing on a deeper level. Hayden. 
Um, um, yeah, I, but- I, 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 I don't think... Uh, first off, I think that the label torture porn mm-hmm. is... Like, it was intended, I think, to be derogatory, and then we just didn't have another term for it. Not that pornography is inherently derogatory as a term. It shouldn't be. But mm-hmm. um, it was labeled as, oh, those films. And I think that has led a lot of people to either ignore them as artistic statements mm-hmm. or at the very least sort of slough off as, oh, it was post 9-11 American anxiety over violence. Mm-hmm. And that's there. And you're absolutely right. Um, and like any genre, there are good movies and bad movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm actually, sometimes I wonder if that whole genre of cinema, the ones that were all about gruesome physical violence and mm-hmm. like highlighting it and highlighting the the pain and the yeah, the, the agony the, the actual physical uh, elements of being tortured yeah it's not it's not just you, you're stabbed and you die and it sucks for mm-hmm. 30 seconds and then you're gone it's like it's gonna endure and i think what a lot of filmmakers are trying to get at is at least on a on a superficial level that what is it that really scares us about violence? Because a lot of even very good horror movies can make violence rather palatable. Either it's goofy or Mm. it's stylish or it's slick or it's entertaining. And I think by pulling out all of the expedience, the artifice, the editing away from things, and just showing that violence is actually suffering. Mm. I think there was an attempt made by at least some of those filmmakers to sort of explore what violence actually feels like and why Mm -hmm. when we show violence in movies, especially when we show violence in movies that aren't torture porn, like James Bond movies where people just get shot all the time and no one Mm -hmm. cares, that in a way they're almost irresponsible. No, absolutely they are. I'm on record by saying that I think uh, action, like action as a genre... Is, is really responsible because uh, it operates on uh, the principle of righteous violence. Yeah. How uh, all... It's co- good committed. that James Bond did yeah, it's, that. It's, it's real good. good. It's good yeah. that you can destroy things, crash cars... Uh, he has know. a license for that. Yeah. Cr- create, There's a whole movie about that. Create pain, death, and destruction in the yeah. name of righteousness. And it's, it's always struck me as a, a little bit uneasy just because yeah. I'm... I'm also kind of a pacifist wuss at heart, unless it's yeah. a torture movie, and then I'm okay. <laughs> like, if, yeah. if people are getting their limbs ripped off, I'm all right. But, yeah, if somebody's racing a car shooting a gun, I can't abide by it. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think there were very few films within the genre that were trying to really dissect uh, – the function of movie violence. Yeah. I think there were some intelligent filmmakers who were doing it or at least trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I did sense, uh, especially at the time, a huge streak of just bleak nihilism. Yes. Uh, you and I did a whole commentary track for a film called Buried. Yeah, uh, which, which is, isn't really torture porn, it's but it's torture torturous and it is scary. It, it's, it was a film that takes place entirely inside a coffin. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Reynolds has been buried alive. He has a telephone. It's about how he you know has to stave off the animals that are creeping into the box and also you know try to make a telephone call so he could get help and remember everything he can about the circumstances of how he got there. And uh, it ends on a very bleak note. And I think America was just in a bleak mood at that time. I think, I I think, think after a lot 9 of 11, uh, a lot of Americans, first off, a lot of people lost people. And there's something mm-hmm. just obviously incredibly immediate and terrible about that. But whether you actually lost someone in the attacks on 9 11 or you were just mm-hmm. part of this country, which was attacked very, very suddenly and very. You know, it's cinematically, like just the image of it, it's just like, wow, holy 
cow. Like, it's all, your mind was blown mm. by seeing this image on the news. Like, this is the kind of thing we would see in movies, for yeah. God's sake. It's so huge what happened. I think a lot of people were sent reeling. I think a lot of people were suddenly aware, not just of their own mortality, but also of our vulnerability. America had felt pretty safe for a while there had been attacks there had been bad things that had happened but on that scale it had been a long time mm. since something that huge and a generation that had just like two years before in Fight Club talking about how like yeah nothing bad ever happened to us and that sucked yeah, we, and now we, we're, we have no identity because there's no tragedy to bring us together yeah, and, and, and now we're like uh, that's not what we meant sorry yeah, sorry yeah. <laughs> holy shit oh that was so bad I'd love to see a double feature of Fight Club and World War Z, mm. two Brad Pitt movies That's on like either side of that conflict. That's an interesting yeah. Um But uh, but yeah, I think the horror was actually an opportunity for people to, it, it maybe not smartly, and I've seen a lot of bad movies that are in the so-called torture porn genre. Uh, but I think even the bad ones were an attempt to provide a certain form of catharsis for this yeah. sudden awareness we have. Of our mm. mortality as a culture, there's a lot of like a lot of those torture porn films are about you know sort of mindless Americans who suddenly get like thrown into mm. violent situations that they were completely unprepared for. But they weren't all American. Wolf Creek is an Australian movie. Wolf Creek, but Wolf Creek also has a lot of uh, uh, politics behind it in terms of like the the villain in Wolf Creek fits a lot of the checked boxes of Australian cliche. Yeah, and it's it's actually kind of the sequel actually makes this kind of on the nose. It's actually like a sequence in which like he's gonna like cut off I forget what it is he's gonna like cut off a piece of you if you can't answer Australian trivia oh, <laughs> like you don't right. actually yeah, know anything no, about no, actual Australian about, yeah, Australian but history I haven't seen, I heard the series is pretty good I haven't seen the series the sequel's good and bad but the original is really brutal and terrifying mm-hmm. but it does have a point and it is it's maybe about something a little different but like it, it does have a point mm-hmm. um, but in any case I, I don't think we should write off any genre I think what happens mm-hmm. a lot with horror is that it goes in these really overwhelming waves in which there's a lot of a certain kind of movie made Found really rapidly. Films, haunting movies Yeah, right because now. horror movies are, they're, they're quick to make. They're generally very cheap. And as a result, we get a big wave of copycats anytime something is new and exciting. Mm. And as a result, a lot of those copycats aren't made well. Some are, but a lot of them aren't. And they tend to start racking up. And then people start getting tired of the genre. Then people start mocking the genre. People start saying the genre doesn't work. But usually we go back and we realize that there was something to it. I think the found footage boom, mm. which I'm glad died down because it was just deafening for a while. But like, <laughs> I actually think that was a really interesting era of cinema. I think that was a really interesting, like weirdly specific brand new storytelling mechanism that completely took the world by storm for like five years, like a good long chunk of time mm. in movie time. And you go back and yeah, a lot of them sucked. A lot of them were really fascinating. A lot of them had something to say or at least tried. And I love that. And I actually have been thinking about maybe going back and doing some kind of retrospective on like found footage just because it was so mockable for so long, mm. but there's a lot of really interesting films that did interesting things with that and had thoughts in their head about what it means now to live our lives on camera so often. So yeah, torture porn. It, it, I, it's, 
it's not a great name. <laughs> you don't always choose your nickname, but uh, it's, I, I, it's an interesting I, period in horror in the horror genre. I, I, I understand why they chose yeah. that name. And I get that, it. I, I, I don't. Porn is supposed to be fun. <laughs> I don't think torture porn is supposed to be fun. Well, that's why that's why they prefaced it with torture, right? Uh, I think that makes it kind of a contradiction mm, in terms, and not in the, a way I, that's actually illuminating. The but. idea being that porn is there for the sex, and it, it's the film around it is unimportant, mm-hmm. and uh, these torture films the torture was there and the movie around it wasn't important that's what yeah. I was getting at alright I just uh, think you're supposed to be scared of the torture mm-hmm. not just to go like, yeah like I don't think well no, the, the problem was a lot of the films were there to go yeah I don't know a lot there were definitely some there were some there were yeah. definitely some and definitely I, I think, some. I think grant, a lot of them that. sprung from this sense of just uh, hopelessness and nihilism yeah and I think a lot of people weren't comfortable with that. And that's that's why uh, the entire genre is pilloried. Yeah. But then you watch The Devil's Rejects and you're like, oh, wait, there's art here. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. That, that's one of, that's one mm-hmm. of the good examples. Um, okay. So uh, thank you, everybody, for writing in. Again, if you want to write in for a future episode of We've Got Mail, it's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We'll happily talk about anything you want to discuss. Um, of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, together, we are have a Patreon. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a ton of exclusive podcasts about uh, TV, Disney, the Academy Awards. We do commentary tracks. We do Google Hangouts. We do all kinds of exclusive content, as much, if not more, than we put out here on the critically acclaimed network. So uh, please check it out. We hope to, to see you over there if you can afford it. And a very special thank you to all of our Patreons. Our Patreons, our all pa- of our pa- Patreon patrons, all of our patrons, without whom none of this would be possible. Yeah, we would yeah. we would not be able to do this right now. So I'm really grateful to you. Thank you so much, everyone, for keeping this going. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. If we didn't get to your email, stick around. We try to get to as many as we can every single week. Yeah. But it's hard to catch up. So um, um, uh, b- yeah. before we go, I want to hype my new radio drama. Hype the show. I, I I made a new radio drama. It's a 38 minute audio drama with full cast, uh, music, sound effects, the whole schmear. It's called Determined. Uh, maybe not the best title, but uh, it actually has a double meaning. And uh, it's about a trio of friends who, while searching through their dead companion's belongings, find a, an old video cassette. And uh, she was able, the owner of the video cassette was able to record herself having a conversation with them in the future because she was a psychic and she has asked them to avenge her death. Uh, it's available uh, just directly through me. If you contact me through uh, social medias, through the Instagrams or through the Twitters, just uh, we can arrange something through Venmo or PayPal and I can email you an MP3. I have two other shows. If you want uh, any one, two or three of them, we can strike some kind of deal. Please buy my radio shows. I think you'll enjoy them. Oh my god! I just saw the picture you sent me of Luca like falling asleep in my arms, and it is adorable. that I took during the show. <laughs> that is adorable. I have to post that tomorrow. I'm making a note of it. We have to post right. that. It's so cute. All right, so listen, like it, every- it can be the banner image on on the website. I don't know if it's yeah. high resolution enough, uh, but seriously, thank you so much, everybody, and uh, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>